Welcome to Christian Life Academy. We are working our way through the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession, and we are in Chapter two, uh, 3 of God's Decree. Uh, of God's Decree. And just a reminder, Chapter 1 is of the Scriptures, because, of course, everything we study in doctrine, everything we look at is based on what the Scriptures tell us. That is our, uh, our place of truth. This is where we find out what is true, is from the Scriptures. Then Chapter 2 is of God and the Holy Trinity, so this describes who God is and how he is God and what that means, what the implications are, and what our relationship is with him. And then chapter 3 is of God's decree. And as we went through this, we talked about the fact that the decree is to command something. Looks like my battery is too weak for a laser. Oh, there it is. Very dim. To a sign or a point, God has a decorative will or a sovereign or a secret will. The Baptist Catechism... Question number 10 says, The degrees of God are his eternal purpose, according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. And this is the distinction that we have to make sure we understand. This is something that man frequently does not want to believe, and that is that God has planned everything. He has decreed everything. He knows what's going to happen, and it's going to happen the way he planned. God's not surprised. God is not shocked. God doesn't know something's going to happen, and then he reacts. He's not a reactive God. He is God. If he's a reactive God, he's not God. Because that means he was surprised. He didn't know what was going to happen. That's not God. That's not what the scriptures say. And as we worked our way through, (laughs) paragraph 1, which is where we're at right now, God hath decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably in all things, whatsoever come to pass, Yet so as thereby is God neither the author of sin, nor hath fellowship, just taking a peek here, nor hath fellowship with any therein, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature, nor yet is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established, in which appears his wisdom in disposing all things, and power, and faithfulness in accomplishing his decree. All right, so then, basically, we started working through how the, this, this paragraph, which uh, this is how the Second London Baptist Confession is. It's kind of packed full of information, so we break it down so that we can look at each phrase and each part of the paragraph to understand it. We know that God has decreed, this is plainly stated, he's decreed as himself. He's decreed from all eternity, that's before time. Uh, by the most wise and holy counsel, which, of course, is him. He is the only truly holy being that exists, is God. So it's by his perfect and wise and holy counsel. Freely, God does as he he pleases. He's not subject to man. Man does not say, I want this, and God says, oh, well, you want that, so I better do that. He wouldn't be God. That's impossible. Besides the fact that most of the time, what we think we want is not really what we want, or it's not good for us, or it's bad. Since his decrees are based on the most wise and holy counsel, there will never be a reason to change them midstream, which makes sense, of course. All things, whatsoever things, makes it clear it's everything. Everything that happens is included in God's decree. God's decree is universal. That's plainly stating it. Then we continued on. We talked about the classes, and this is where we're at, classes of events that are included in God's decree. And this helps us understand better the fact that God's decree covers everything. Now, this is what we think. We think, okay, well... Creation. Yeah, clearly God had a plan for creation, so got to be God's decree, right? And then, um, well, Christ. 
Christ coming, dying on the cross, paying for man's sins. Okay, that's God's decree. Yeah, that makes sense. That has to happen. And then end times. There's a whole bunch of prophecy, right? So God must have a plan for how things are going to go. You know, he's seen what's going to happen, and so he made it his plan. That's not the way that it works. His, the scriptures are clear over and over and over and over and over and over. I could say the rest of the class over that God has planned what's going to happen. He's planned it. So as we worked through and we read these scriptures, we saw that he plans good and evil events. God plans good and evil events. We talked about, we read through these scriptures and looked at these different passages that show how God says in his word that he planned evil. Now think about that just for a second. What's the most simple thing you can think of? Christ's betrayal. Death on the cross. Would anyone say that that's not evil? Of course that's evil. Did God plan for that to happen? Yes, he did. By the way, if he wouldn't have planned for that to happen, then it couldn't have happened. And if it didn't happen, everyone's going to hell. God had to have that happen. Those events had to happen. Sinful acts. There's a lot of verses for this, and of course we just have a sample of the verses for every one of these. But in sinful acts, God has planned for these things to happen. We see this over and over again. We just talked about the sinful acts of crucifying Christ. But don't forget that there's other things that you're, you really know in Scripture because it's pretty clear. We see the verses all the time. How about the fact that Israel was taken into captivity? Would you say that's a good thing? Or is that an evil thing? Evil, certainly. How about, oh, here's some. Get ready for this. Oh, this is going to cook your noodle. Here we go. Cook your noodle. Here we go. David and Bathsheba. Oh, now we're starting to get into not comfortable territory. David and Bathsheba had to happen. Had to happen. Who was the child of Bathsheba that's in the line of Christ? Who? Solomon. Solomon. King of Israel. No Bathsheba, no Solomon. No line of Christ. You see this? Had to happen. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Over and over again, we see this in Scripture. We looked at the verses that talk about these things. Free acts of men. Free acts of men. God's planned it. God's planned it. What? Free acts of men? God's planned it? Yes. God has planned it. God has planned it. You think your free acts, God was surprised at? God didn't know it was going to happen? You caught him off guard. Whoa, I guess I better change things up because I didn't see that coming. That He wouldn't be God. If you think about it in that big picture, yeah, he wouldn't be God if he didn't know that things were going to happen the way that they happened. Does that make sense? Chance occurrences. <laughs> things that we call chance occurrences, right? We see that... The scriptures show us many examples of the fact that they're not chance occurrences. They're not chance occurrences. Then we talked about details of our lives. Even small details of our lives. God has planned them. God has planned these things to happen. We look at those verses. Affairs of the nations. Again, God is in control. He planned it. Yeah, I'm, I, I know people are 
you know, I'll just say it this way so we'll cover everybody both ways. Yes, God intended Donald Trump to be president. Yes, God intended Joe Biden to be president. So wherever you're at, God planned for them to be president. Say, well, that, how could that, that's bad. You want to know something else? God planned for Adolf Hitler. Do you think that couldn't have happened? Like, God, that snuck up on him? He didn't have any way to stop that? Think that's true? Can't be true, can it? We don't like to think that way. But that is affairs of nation, and that is evil things, and God is in control and has planned them to happen. That's it. It's not any mystery. And by the way, God also planned that we would defeat Hitler. God planned that too. Final destruction of the wicked. God has planned for that. We saw verses where it talks about that God made people, some specific people, for destruction. Made them for destruction. We see this in multiple places. We read some verses there to talk about that. And then we talked about, these are just footnotes from that section of the uh, confession, that sentence that we read, that phrase, I should say, that we read, and we covered that. All right, so now we're caught back up. That's a, that's a, that's a review of the last three weeks. All right. So carefully guarded. So first we were, it was, it was plainly stated, now carefully guarded. So this is the part of the paragraph that we're working on. So yet so as thereby is God neither the author of sin, nor hath fellowship with any therein. Now this does not impugn the holiness of God. And this is a little bit confusing. And again, let's just remember that as we work through this chapter and the last chapter, we talked about this. I think we actually mentioned it in chapter 1 of the scriptures, although that was a pretty long chapter. But there are things called divine mysteries, and these are not Agatha Christie with involving God. Divine mysteries are things that we do not fully comprehend and understand. They are a mystery. How does it work the way that it works? We can't say that exactly. Look, by the way, let me give you some, some divine mystery information. How do you get to Christ's presence when you die? Do you know? No, you don't know. I don't know either. Paul, do you know? Brands? No. We don't know. Okay, so you say, well, what do you mean? I mean, you're dead, you're in Christ's presence. Is that the way it goes? Do angels escort you? Do you see it? Are you in a tunnel with a big light at the end? We, we don't know. We don't know. What is the transition when your spirit leaves your body? Do you see your body as you're going away? Right? We don't know. Could it be? Could be, because we don't know. So that simple thing, the transition from your spirit being in your physical body to being in the presence of the Lord, that transition is a divine mystery. We don't know it. We don't understand. All right? How could Jesus actually be God and man at the same time? Now, the scripture is very clear on this, that he was both God and man. And there's been controversies in the church, as we've talked about, through the millennia. Those controversies in some places were modalism and other things where people said, oh, no, well, he's God at one time and he's man at another time. And he flips back and forth. Or, no, he's not really man. He was just a spirit that looked like a man. And people thought he was a man, but he wasn't a man. Look, all those things are wrong. First of all, they're wrong because the Scripture says it's otherwise. If he was not truly man, then death on the cross would mean nothing. He literally had to die. He had to die physically. So he wasn't just a spirit, right? I'm not going to go through all those different 
heresies about different things of Christ and what, what he was. But this idea of how God and man can exist simultaneously in one body is a divine mystery. We don't understand it. How about where is heaven actually located? Or where is hell actually located? Now, do we see references to death being down, going down to hell, going into the grave? Yes, but usually those things are related to the grave. In other words, when someone dies, they go down into the grave. They go into the ground. This is what we see in Scripture. So most of those references actually deal with death in that way. But there is also places where you see heaven and hell across a great chasm. Right? Lazarus, remember this? The rich man sees him across the chasm. Sees from literally from heaven to hell. So how does this work? We see that in some places in Scripture, particularly you can think of Stephen, right? His eyes were opened as he's about to be stoned to death. He's dying, literally, uh, close at hand, his death, and he sees heaven. Tells them when he's preaching his message in Acts, he sees heaven. Where was it? Was it over there? Was it up there? Was it down there? We don't know, right? We don't know. The fact of heaven and hell existing simultaneously in a place where it can actually be visually seen from earth is a divine mystery. Is it another another plane of reality that we just can't see at this point? What about angels? We can't see angels. Why can't we see angels? If we had the right kind of camera phone, would we see angels? No, you wouldn't see angels. But you see the point, right? The idea of how angels exist where we are at the same time, in the same room that we are, which the scripture tells us this is the case, and we can't see them, is a mystery. Why can't we see them? How is their existence real without us being able to actually see them? Did men see angels at some points? They did, right? There's many examples in the scripture of people seeing angels. So why do they appear sometimes they don't appear other times? Well, clearly it would be God's will, right? That would be God's will that that happens. But the idea of how do they exist and do they actually have atoms? Do they not have atoms? How does that all work? By the way, they don't have atoms. But anyway, so we know that for sure. Why? Atoms are created. Atoms are created. Now the angels don't exist in our same plane, right? So how do they exist in our same plane if they, if they have atoms? How, do, how can that be? can't be. So their spirit of angels can it solidify in human form at some time it sure can it sure can we see it in the scripture see it happen many times how does that work why is it sometimes why another time all divine mystery right all divine mystery so in other words there are some things that we cannot explain now let's not be confused about this stuff right all we have to do is accept it because god's word says so it doesn't mean that we have to be comfortable with it it doesn't mean that we have to understand all the logic of it we have to understand the science of it we have to understand the uh, spiritual significance we just have to understand that god says it's so and that makes it so if god's word says that's the truth and that's the truth look we had we didn't have to have any any evidence of the flood which by the way there's so much evidence of the flood there's no evidence of evolution so much evidence of the flood we needed none to believe the flood is true. Why? God's word says so. God's word says so. We literally have a book that tells us the history of the world. There's a book. The Bible. We don't have to wonder about that. Does that make sense? So when we talk about these concepts of God's decree, we have to understand that God's decree is somewhat of a divine mystery. Why? The idea that God planned everything and yet we still have free will seems contradictory in our minds. 
You understand this? Now, let me give you another slight divine mystery. And, okay. I want to say this in a gracious way, not to you, but to other preachers. I want to say this in a gracious way. I believe that sometimes well-intentioned preachers and teachers will try to explain divine mysteries because they think that people should understand everything instead of just accepting the fact that it's a divine mystery. Okay? And they do this all the time about things that the Scripture does not speak to. And this becomes the difficulty. Look, if the Scripture does not tell us why Bathsheba was on the roof taking a bath that night, we don't know. Can we agree with that? You could say, well, it's probably because this. Maybe it was hot in the house. Maybe it was, maybe it was, maybe it was a tradition of this. You know what? It doesn't say. Why do we focus on that? We don't need to focus on that. Are you with me? We don't need to focus on that. So when we look at things that we're a little confused about, let's just accept what God's will says and not try to build things in to try to explain it away. And so here's where I was going. That was a rabbit trail right there, but it was important. Here's where I was going with this. Rahab the harlot. Rahab the harlot. Now, when I was in my early 20s, that was my stump the dummy question. What stump the dummy, you ask? Stump the dummy is when the guy's up there answering, anybody have any questions, general questions, and then you come up with a question that stumps them. Right? So I get this all the time. People ask me questions all the time. Stump the dummy questions. Like, I can't come up with a good answer. <laughs> so, it's all right. So, it's fun. So, anyway, I would ask the question because I didn't understand. How could Rahab the harlot be rewarded, saved from death? Her section of the wall, according to the scripture, did not collapse when all the walls of the city fell. Her section did not. She and her family were saved. Why? What did she do? What? She believed, but what did she do? What did you say? She lied. Did you catch that? She told, she let, she hit them. She told the soldiers that they went this other direction, opposite of where she knew they were going. And then she lowered them down, the, down out, of the, out of the window of her housing. She lied. She was saved from destruction. And her family was saved because she lied. How is that okay? The best explanation I heard, which by the way, the answer is, it's some of a divine mystery. Now, oh, by the way, let's, before I say the best explanation I've heard about it, but let me, let me just remind you who Rahab the harlot is. Who knows who Rahab the harlot married? Who did, regardless of the movies, who did Rahab the harlot marry? Jenny. Caleb. Rahab the harlot is in the line of Christ. She's one of four women in Matthew that explains they're in the line of Christ. No Rahab the harlot, no Christ. Why was she saved? Why did she become married? Because she lied. That's a little the noodle cooker right there, isn't it? Wow. Best explanation I heard was, the concept of lying to the Hebrews is not the same as ours. 
Now, I saw some really good arguments that, that was, there is a difference between lying and telling the truth in the way we look at it, which is very black and white, right? Between lying that's going to benefit someone else versus lying that's going to be detrimental to somebody else. Now, if you think about it in the scripture, is there, let's say, a rule, maybe, one out of ten, let's say, against lying? Is there a rule that says this? Well, we say, yes, that's the rule. Thou shalt not bear false witness, right? Thou shalt not bear false witness. If you bear false witness, is that detrimental against the person that you're bearing witness against? It is. By the way, does the Bible say that God hates a liar? It does say that. Okay, so that one, that answer got me thinking. Could there be some truth to the how that works? There might be. But the bottom line is, is that she did mislead them. In our view, she did lie, and yet she was rewarded from this, not only to the point that she was saved from destruction, but to the point that she got married, she had children, and one of them has children that will eventually lead to Christ. So, however you look at it, you could say, how could God use this, plan this, this harlot, this is a prostitute, to become the person that's in the line of Christ? It's, about, it's a bit of a divine mystery. We don't fully understand that. But we have to accept it. Why? Because God's word says so. You see what I'm saying? So when we look at this issue in particular, we have to remember this concept of divine mystery. Now what do we mean by that? Well, let's think about this. So we just went through, the last couple of weeks, all these verses that talk about that God planned all these different things. Men to sin. Did God plan for Judas to betray Christ? He did. Was that a sin for Judas to, to, to betray Christ? That was a sin. It was a sin. Did he do it? He did it. He did it. Does that mean he didn't have free will? Hmm. Starts to get a little tricky, doesn't it? So he had to sin. So that right, she's right. He's also responsible for his actions, so that is where the divine mystery comes. How can it be that God plans for this to happen and yet it's still sin if you're doing what God already planned? That's what we're going to talk about. That is tricky. That is difficult. But let's keep in mind this concept of a divine mystery because that certainly is true for this. Certainly true for this. All right. So God's decreed will extends even to Adam and Eve's disobedience and to all other sinful actions. We just looked at a bunch of those. God works all things, including sinful acts of man, for good. Now God does this without being the author of sin or forcing people to do what they do not want to do. In other words, if you want to look at it this way, this does not fully explain it. You're going to find some glitches in the logic of this. Trust me, I, I've worked through this. You're going, to, you're going to say, Brian, that doesn't work out this way. I know it doesn't work out this way. I'm just trying to help you to understand a little bit better. It's like God knows exactly how you will react to the information that you have and the things that have happened to you, and he's planned for that to happen so that you are going to react a certain way to do something. Is it because he wants that to happen? Yes. Is it because you want that to happen? Yes. You do too. 
Was it wrong for you to want that? Yes. But you do. Look, we're all tempted. We all sin. And the reality is, is you can sit here on Sunday morning at church and you could say, I don't want to sin. I wish I wouldn't sin. I don't want to really do that anymore. But you still sin. Is Who doesn't? Yeah, one, two, three. Okay, only three of you. Everybody else sits. No, nobody raised their hand. Well, a few people did. Well, they, they had a big smile on their face, so I think they were faking it. Anyway, so we, we don't want to sin. We know we shouldn't sin, but we still sin. Why? Well, the scriptures say because you still have a body that's in the flesh. You still have a sin nature in you. You still have that. You're not fully sanctified. You're not perfected yet. That doesn't happen until death. In death, you'll be fully sanctified, no more sin. You will not be compelled to sin. You will not feel the need to sin. You will not want to sin. This will not be something that you will do anymore. There will be no more sin. Sanctified, fully. When God works all things, even sinful acts of man, for according to his will, for his good, it's just the way that it is. It's just the way that it is. And notice, by the way, the scripture over and over shows us this. We're going to see a few verses we're going to look at. When God's word tells us that he works all things together for good, it's for his good. It's for his good. It's not for our good. Prosperity gospel is false. I'm sorry, but that part of Joel Osteen's message is wrong. God does not want you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. That's not, you know when you're going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise? If you die. Seems like an oxymoron, doesn't it? But you will be then. You'll have, he has treasures for you in heaven. Did the, apostles, did the apostles end up healthy, wealthy, and wise? None of them did. All but one were tortured to death. Paul had an affliction his whole life. He wrote on it many times, right? He had an affliction his whole life. Is that because he wasn't following? Really, the Apostle Paul was not true enough of a believer, was not faithful enough, and so he had this affliction? No. You know what Paul says? He has the affliction for God's glory. That's why he had it. He literally had a problem because it helped his ministry. Helped his ministry. God puts limits on sin. He orders sin, governs sin in various ways for his will and glory. So, do we see in world history, do we see in the present history, or present history, yeah, that's an oxymoron right there, do we see in world history or in present day, present day, do we see sin that looks like, or in the past looked like, it's unbridled? Like evil, that's like there's no way to stop this evil. Have we seen that? We certainly have seen that. Right? Look, you know, as Hitler marched across Europe, people like, and don't, don't keep in mind, the United States of America was not ready to fight Hitler. You know, it took us basically three and a half years to get ready to fight Hitler. We weren't ready. Hitler was marching across Europe, and people thought, this is it. How about when the Muslims and Islam was spreading all across Europe, defeating nations, moving across Europe? People thought, this is it. You can't stop this evil. Did they stop it? Yeah. Did Hitler get stopped? Yeah. 
See, sin is not out of control. God governs it. He governs it. He has control over how far sin can go. In fact, he already has a plan for how long, how far he's going to allow it to go, and then he's going to thwart it. Now you say, well, does he always thwart sin? Not according to what we think he should. Of course he does. What about somebody who's a terrible person, they're a, they kill people, and they never get caught, and they die of natural causes? They're a murderer. What happened after they died? Did that sin catch up with them? Yeah. It caught up. Could God have cut that off early? Yeah, in fact, most of the time he does. Most of the time people that are doing those horrible things get caught or something happens. It's true. So look, don't let that be an encouragement to you. That first of all, God is in control. That's the way we should look at everything. God is in control. Things are going to happen that are bad. He's still in charge. He's still in control. This is not a surprise to him. In fact, it's the way he planned it. So you say, well, we can't stop the one world government, Bilderberger, uh, Trilateral Commission. Uh, throw in some other ones, Jenny. Feel free. Illuminati. I forgot the Illuminati. Yeah, they're big. Illuminati. What? QAnon? QAnon. Uh, uh, media. Mass media, fake news, what? Deep state. Deep state uh, huh? <laughs> she made that one up, lizard people. <laughs> really? Flat earth, whatever. All of, those, all of those conspiracy theories, which, by the way, are there such groups as the Bilderberg Group? Well, there is a Bilderberg Group, it's true. Is there a trilateral commission? Yeah, there is a trilateral commission. Are there? But here's the point. No matter, they are not out of control. Right? So if there's going to be a one-world government, which, by the way, the Scripture says there's going to be a one-world government, but if there's going to be a one-world government, God is going to allow that to happen. Or he's going to thwart it. He is still in control. You say, well, yeah, but this whole thing is happening. I mean, they want to try to wipe people out, and you know, they're trying to uh, legislate and, and control us to a point where we can't do anything we're supposed to do and everything. God's still in control. God, it's not going to go the way God's not, not planned it to go. He still is sitting on the throne. He still is in charge. So uh, let me say something. Oh, man. I'll probably rouse some of you up right now. What happens if the government says nobody should have guns? Well, that's it. Open rebellion. That probably would happen here. But did God lose control? Does that mean that now you're, everyone's going to get killed because no one's allowed to have guns? Hmm. Hmm. Doesn't mean that. Doesn't mean that. Does it? Jenny just got back from Scotland. You can't have guns. They're still alive. The English and the Scottish people, still there. Still living. Still carrying on. That simple thing did not make them die. And if it did make them die, by the way, what is the fear? They're going to heaven? Oh, the ones that aren't saved ought to be afraid. 
But the ones that are, what, what, if somebody, if a gunman came in this door right now and killed us all, now you might be scared, they're coming in, this is unexpected, there's this thing. But look, if you get killed in that exchange of gunfire and you're a believer, hallelujah. You have just gone to eternal reward. No more dealing with all the tra- travails of life. You're in heaven. Don't go out and step in front of a truck, okay? I'm just saying that if God's plan is for you to die, then you should accept that that's his plan. Well, we, can all, we all have hopes, right? We all have hopes. We hope that this is the way we'll die. Look, I don't know anybody who hasn't thought about that. Maybe kids. You ever thought about it? Okay, good. You? Good. You ever thought about that? She doesn't even know what I'm saying. That's right. So no. Look, but anybody else who's an adult, you have thought about this, right? Probably because you have seen people die. Now, I don't mean you've physically seen people die. A lot of people have not seen somebody physically die. But what I'm saying is, is that you've seen how people died and that you've thought about how you want to die. Now, in general, let me just say that I know a few things from people in my past experience. Number one, if someone is a warrior, a soldier, they want to die in a blaze of glory. Literally. They want to die fighting for a cause. If someone is getting up in age, you know what they want? They want to die still with all their faculties. Or they don't want to be letting disease eat away at their body, stuck in bed, lingering. True. Everybody knows people that went through those things. And what you think is, I pray that doesn't happen to me. Why? Well, you feel bad for the person it happened to. Right? It's true. But in the end, it doesn't, you're not going to care. Like, when you die, for whatever cause, whatever happens, whether it's extremely old age, I hope that happens, you're all 140, or whether it is uh, disease, or whether it's a car accident, or whatever it is that happens that takes your life, you are not going to care anymore about the fact that it, was, it ha- didn't happen the way that you wanted it to happen. I didn't plan it that way. Why did God do this? You're not going to say that. You're going to be thankful that you're with God. That's what's going to happen. All right? So when you know a believer that dies, there's not a chance that they want to come back. Okay? They say, oh, I wish you were here with us now. They don't. They don't want to be here. Right? We've got to be careful. We talk about, you know, oh, I wish your mother. Don't say this to Lisa tomorrow. I wish your mother wouldn't have passed away. What? She was not having a good time. She was in the nursing home. She'd been struggling, had been weak. She was not having a good time. She was not having a good time. Look, this was God's plan. What you can be sorry for is that Lisa will miss her mother. I'm sorry for your loss. You have lost a loved one who you'll never, you won't see for a while. For a while, right? When my dad died, my mom grieved because she was going to miss her husband. Not because she was worried that she wasn't going to see him again. She was confident she would see him again, right? And she didn't want him back. She missed him. But what she really wanted was to be with him. Now she is. Now she is. Let's not fear these things. 
Let's recognize that God is in control, even of sin. He's not going to let things happen that are going to be bad things that are going to exist without his control of the sin. It's not unbridled. He is in control. And regardless of how bad it looks, how dark the night, how dim the light in which we exist, how bad things get, God is still in control. And the ultimate release that men fear the most is joy to the believer. Men fear death. Confident believers never fear death. You shouldn't. I have not seen very many believers who were afraid when they got close to death. Really haven't. Why? Hmm. That's a bit of a divine mystery. Why exactly? Hmm, can't say that for sure. Could it be that the Holy Spirit gives them a calm assurance? Where they know what's going to happen is going to be okay. That could be. Could be. We don't know. But let's remember that God is still in charge. Through it all, through whatever situation happens, God is still in charge. He's still in charge. All right, let's look at a few verses just relating to this. Does not impugn God's holiness. James 1.13. Let no man say when he is tempted, I have tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. So when you're tempted to sin, don't say, God's tempting me to sin. That's what James is saying. 1 John 1.5, This then is the message which we have heard of him, and declare unto you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. God is not evil. God is not sin. God is not bad. There's no darkness in him. Clearly says it. By the way, this differs from other religions. Other religions have gods that they claim are gods, and they are gods in little g. They're not true. They're not real. But they often claim that some of their gods are evil. They have mischievous gods. They have evil gods, not our God. Romans 8.28, And we know that all things work together for good for to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. All things work together for good to them that love God. It's good whether or not we think so or not. Like, this is not the verse you want quoted to you when something bad is going on. Right? The storm hit, my roof collapsed, all the water's running in, everything in my house is ruined. Well, just don't forget that all things work together for good to those of them that love God and are called according to his purpose. Not necessarily the verse you're hoping to hear at that time, but still true. Isn't it? It does like not situationally true. It's true all the time. Doesn't matter if we think we want to hear that at that point or not, it still is true. How can this bad thing be used for good? God planned it that way. Maybe it's to show others how a believer reacts under duress. So, don't kick the wood and scuff your foot in the dirt and be a bad testimony. Right? Genesis 50:20 But as for you ye thought evil against me but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. Who is that? Joseph. Joseph. Are we covering that today? No. 
That's down the road still. We're getting close. We're getting close. But as for you, you thought it evil against me. What's he talking about? When they sold him into slavery. Remember this? Threw him in a pit, then took him out of the pit, sold him into slavery. But God meant it unto good. To bring to pass, as it is this day, to save much people alive. You remember that Joseph, right? Like, if you've been here on Sunday mornings, you know this is true, because Brant's been teaching through Genesis. He got out. He got out of slavery to go into prison. He was a slave of Potiphar. And things are looking pretty good. He must be doing a good job. He's running the household. Potiphar's wife tempts him. He rejects the temptation. He was probably like, I'm glad I rejected that temptation. Then she accused him, and he got thrown into prison. Not good. Not good. Was that evil of her to accuse him? It was. But he had to be in prison so that he could interpret the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker so that then the king would ask them when he freed the cupbearer, the baker, he alleviated him of his head. So then he asks him, he, the, the conversation with the king and the cupbearer happens. How does this even happen? But it happened. Who told you the dream? This man in prison. The king has a dream. He calls Joseph. Joseph interprets the dream. Joseph becomes the number two man in Egypt. He's second only to Pharaoh. That None of that would happen if it wasn't for the evil that his brothers did. And here he's reminding them this is the case. In fact, they would have died of famine, starvation, if it wasn't for Joseph and the bad things that happened to him to lead up to that. You, are you with me on this? All right. We have to carefully guard from implying the error of fatalism. The error of fatalism. We'll talk about this as we go, just to make sure everyone understands what we mean by when we say fatalism. All right? So this is an easy place to go. It's a really easy place to go. It's especially an easy place to go when you're upset. Let's just be honest. This is an easy place to go when you're upset. When things are going badly, you don't like the way things went, and then, or you did something, you know you shouldn't have done it, and then you just defend yourself, you try to justify yourself by being fatalistic. What do I mean by that? I'm so glad you asked. Let's read. Paragraph 1. Nor continues, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature, nor yet is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. So what this is saying is, nor is violence offered, is that God decides all things, including the actions of man, without violating man's will. Man cannot override God's will, but that does not mean God violates the will of man. That seems like a contradiction. Anybody else see that? That seems like a contradiction. It's divine mystery. Scripture teaches that man's choices and actions are free and decreed at the same time. If God sees no contradiction in this, there is none. Only man in our limited perception and fallen minds has a problem with this. And this is where we really are when we talk about divine mystery. It's in our present state of intellect. By the way, would you say that anyone here is at the same exact intellect level as you? 
No, you can't really say that because you don't really know that. Is that true? Like, we could all take IQ tests right now, and even if two people scored the same IQ, that does not mean that they understand things the same. Are you with me on this? That does not mean that. Here is the reality. It doesn't matter how smart you are, how wise you are, you still have a problem with things like this because you're in a human body. Your mind is still limited and narrow because of the flesh that you are in. Now, some people are wiser than others. Some people have more intellect than others. Some people have better emotions than others, right? All these things are true, but that doesn't mean anything. The bottom line is is that this still looks like a contradiction. So the fact that it isn't a contradiction is something we must accept because God says so. His will is going to be done. He's planned it all to happen. But at the same time, man has free will. Difficult. Doesn't change reality. We have to accept it as a divine mystery. John Calvin wrote this. This is a good explanation. It is an insufferable wickedness to think that we who can hardly crawl on the earth, should take nothing as true except what submits itself to investigation by our eyes. Pause for a second, right here. Pause for a second. You understand that, right? He's saying it's it's unsufferable wickedness. Like it's really wicked for us to think, us people who hardly can walk across the earth, right, that's the limit of our power, can't accept anything as true except what we see. The investigation to our eyes. Now there's some simple truths. I'll quote a movie. Only because it's such a simple truth that it's worth quoting. A little boy says to a man, I believe in Santa Claus. The man says, have you ever seen Santa Claus? And the boy says, have you ever seen a million dollars? The fact that you haven't seen a million dollars doesn't mean that it's not true. It's not real. That's his argument for how Santa Claus is real. You see? Just because you haven't seen it doesn't mean it's not true. Is there, is there an ocean? If you haven't seen an ocean, does that mean there's no ocean? Do you have to see the ocean in order for the ocean to be real? No. Come on. But because of the dense darkness of the human mind by which all knowledge is rendered thin and perishable, Scripture builds for us a higher watchtower from which to observe God overruling all the works of men so as to direct them to the end appointed by him. In other words, we can't see in our eyes that God is directing everything, so the Scriptures gives us a high tower to look down and see in history God is directing everything. It is going according to God's plan. He is in charge. Pretty good way of looking at it. God decreed to make mankind with man's desire and will. It does not contradict or defeat God's will, but is part of God's will. God's decree can include influence on a person's desire so that they freely choose one thing or another. Now think about that. It's a little bit, we're getting into noodle cooking territory here. But think about this for a second. God made man with desire. Right? And we're not talking about sensual or physical desire. We're talking about things you want, you know? 
you desire for there to be air conditioning in here, for instance, let's say. Right? If you had that desire, that is just the way that God made you, that you have desires. Could God have created man so that you never wanted anything you didn't have? He could have, right? Are all desires bad? Of course not. You say, I want this row of corn to be straight. I, I want to make it straight. You're desiring to make the row of corn straight. Is there something wrong with this? No, there's nothing wrong with this, right? I want my cattle to be healthy. I want them to be fed well so that when I finally take them to be processed, to be turned into hamburgers and steaks and everything else, that they're big. Is there anything wrong with that? You desiring that? Of course not. There's nothing wrong with that. Are there sinful desires? Of course there are. But just desire itself isn't sinful. God created man with this desire, and he knows how you're going to react. And he knows the stimulus that will make you react in different ways. So God can use those things so that you will react the way that he has planned. Hmm. See, I said we're getting into noodle cooking territory. So that's a little difficult. It's just true. We have to accept it. God issues decrees or first cause. The exception of those decrees is usually accomplished by God using a variety of means or second causes. So when we saw this, here we go. Yet is, nor yet is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away. So what we're saying here is that God uses a variety of means or second causes for things to happen. So God can say, look, so in other words, for instance, uh, let's say that God uh, decrees that your house get blown away in a storm. Right? So he causes a whirlwind, tornado, to take your house out. Right? That's first decree. So God directly controlled the weather, caused this to happen. Right? What would be a secondary cause? Uh, well, so a secondary could be like, I am um, not being careful and I trip over something, and I fall and break my elbow. I don't know why that one just came up. Anyway, I fall and break my elbow, okay? Now, could God have literally put that thing in the ground that you tripped over so that you would fall and break your elbow? Could have. Probably didn't. Probably that was something that was left on the ground because the dogs were playing with it, and they left it there, and you didn't see it, and then you fell. Secondary cause. You see? Secondary cause. Now, the point is, is the, the confession is saying is that the fact that God has a plan does not mean that he directly causes everything directly to happen. Things can happen in second causes. Things can happen because God planned for things to happen in such a way. That means that, literally, God knew that dog was going to get distracted and was going to drop that toy and go do something else, and that was the toy you were going to trip over and hurt yourself. See this? Second causes. Second causes are God's foreordained means of reaching his foreordained ends. He planned it. He planned it. Foreordained. He planned that was going to happen. God's decree of second causes often appears as accidental or uncertain to us, but nothing happens independent of God's will. Think about that. If he is God, how could that be an accident? Whoa, didn't see that coming. Oh, that worked out because that's what I wanted to have happen in the end. That's not God. That's not what God is saying. He never says that. 
He knows exactly what's going to happen because he planned for it to happen. John Calvin, another quote, pretty good. John Calvin wrote, Let us suppose, for example, that a merchant, having entered a wood in the company of honest men, imprudently wanders from his companions and, pursuing a wrong course, falls into the hands of robbers and is murdered. His death was not only foreseen by God, but also decreed by him. For it is said, not that he, was, he has foreseen to what limits of life every man would extend, but that specifically, this is Job 14.5, he hath appointed bounds which he cannot pass. Yet, as far as our minds are capable of comprehending, all these circumstances appear fortuitous, right? As far as we can tell, this is all, it's just a mistake. He just wandered off the path, and these robbers happen to be in the woods, you see? What opinion shall a Christian form on this case? He will consider all the circumstances of such a death as in their nature fortuitous, but yet he will not doubt that the providence of God presided and directed fortune to that end. So we could say it was all fortuitous, it just happened, this is just what happened, but we have to recognize that God actually intended it to happen that way. That, that man who wandered off the path and died had to die that day, that moment, that second. He could not have avoided it and lived longer. That's what God says to Job. You cannot pass the time that he has allotted for your life. You can't. No way to do it. The same reasoning will apply to future contingencies. All future things being uncertain to us, we hold them in suspense as though they might happen either one way or another. True, right? Like right now, you don't know who you're going to follow up the stairs. But God does. God does. So we hold things for the future in suspense as though they might happen either one way or another. Yet this remains a fixed principle in our hearts that there will be no event which God hath not ordained. So we say, I'll see you at the funeral tomorrow. Completely appropriate to say, if God wills, I'll see you at the funeral tomorrow. True. Right? The reality is, is that that's true of everything. That, if God wills, could be every sentence that you say. If God wills, I'll talk to you after the service. If God wills, we'll go upstairs together. If God wills, we're going to sing a hymn. If God wills, we're going to do that. All of it is only if it's God's will. See this? Now, saying it every once in a while, if God wills, we'll see you on Wednesday. If God wills, we'll see you next Sunday. Those things, very appropriate. Why? We're reminding ourselves. We're reminding ourselves. We're brainwashing ourselves. It's God's will. God is the one who dictates what happens. We think we don't know what's going to happen because we don't know what's going to happen. But God does know. He's planned it. So we can't honestly say we'll be there at 8 a.m. because you don't know if you're going to be there at 8 a.m. What if something happens? What if your tire gets a flat? (laughs) Right? Things can happen so that what we think is going to happen doesn't happen. So we can literally say and be correct if God wills. Because if we get a flat tire, we did because God willed it. See? All right. We'll pause right there because we're out of time. And then we'd have to read the verses if we read this part. So we'll stop right there. All right. Let's close this session in a word of prayer.